My name is Adrian Sykes and welcome to a series of very special podcasts in association with Google. Union Black is an online multi-format content series across YouTube and Google Arts and Culture, featuring a curated collection of videos, audio documentaries, podcasts, stories and photographs. It takes us on a journey celebrating the contributions of Black British music artists, creatives, professionals and scenes. Told by the Black British music community, these stories demonstrate the undeniable influence and impact of Black British music and culture in the UK and beyond. This story and piece of content, the Black British producers behind Global Albums, is a series of podcasts that accompany the visual series with additional content that will spotlight a cross-generation of Black British music producers who have had an international impact. In this episode, we talk to legendary producer Dennis Bavell, the man who not only produced incredible records, but created a genre, Lover's Rock, a sound that epitomised Black Britain. He tells us about sound systems and how they played a part in his life, how he came to work with Linton Kwesi Johnson, how a man synonymous in the world of reggae produced an iconic punk band, and of course, how Janet Kaye's single Silly Games changed the musical landscape. Here's Dennis's story. Today on this episode of Black British Producers Behind Global Albums, I'm joined by the legend that is Dennis Bavell, MBE, producer of, amongst others, Thompson Twins, the pop group, Iroy, Bananarama, The Slits, the incredible Linton Kwesi Johnson, Boy George, Joss Stone, Orange Juice, his own incredible dub albums. And if it wasn't enough to produce those great albums, this is a man who's spawned an entire genre that speaks of Britishness, and that is Lover's Rock. Dennis, I cannot tell you how excited I am to be able to meet you. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be able to hear your story. So let's go back, because... You were born in St. Peter's Barbados in 1950. Yes. <clears throat> How much of that do you remember? And what was life like for you in, in well, the 1950s? In right those there? days, I was a member of a, a staunch Seventh-day Adventist family, which meant that um, I was restricted on Friday nights and on Saturdays because those two times were... When the sun went down on a Friday, the Sabbath began... And when the sun went down on a Saturday, the Sabbath ended. And between the beginning of the Sabbath and the end of the Sabbath, all else was forbidden other than Bible talk. Right. You know, um, it was a time where we were given to understand the Bible. And we had um, like memory verses, you know, certain parts of the Bible that we had not to forget. And my grandfather would begin each day by calling the whole family together and us having family worship. And where we would read some Bible verse, sing a couple of songs, and pray out loud so everybody else in the room can hear what you're praying for or what you're praying about, you know. And at about the age of 10, my mom's younger brother had a guitar. And he played, you know, we played in the church and that, but he also played on the side All right, for, okay. for um, uh, Calypso and a uh, kind of, you know, worldly yeah, yeah, band, yeah, yeah. which my granddad frowned upon. And uh, it caused him to end up marrying the singer who he was playing with and going away from Barbados to Canada right. to live. Right. 
and uh, about the time when my parents, who'd been living in the UK since the 50s, decided, okay, it's time to have our son with us, you know. My dad had um, bought a house, and mum, you know, was working as a nurse in the NHS. My dad was a bus driver for London Transport, and they felt that they could and should have their son, you know, their firstborn, with them in London. I thought differently. <laughs> you want I to thought, stay, you want to stay listen, back home? I was just, you know, enjoying learning the guitar. Right. And I thought, and this is a feeble excuse, but I was like, if I go to London, who's going to, you know, take care of my guitar studies? <laughs> and my grandmother, and I, that's the least of your worries, son. <laughs> you know, and so at the age of 12, news came. A ticket yeah. has been purchased yeah. in the name of Dennis Bovell. Um, who's, uh, I was 12 years old, and... Um, time to pack your grip. Time to pack my grip <laughs> and get to England yeah. before I was 12. Now, this was when I was 11, right. sorry. And suddenly I was on the flight to London on the BOAC, BOAC yeah. plane because my dad had been, he'd lived in America and decided that that wasn't the place he wanted to raise his family. And then he went to London to see if it was possible there. And he quite liked it and um, decided we should join him there. So first mom joined him and then I joined in 1965, a month after my 12th birthday. So I missed it by about a month. <laughs> and um, when I arrived in London, it was like, mm, this is exactly what I thought it would be like, but the houses are a bit close together. <laughs> I mean, and then there I was in Battersea, where my dad had bought a house where it was an up-and-coming area where blacks were buying yeah. into. I think he paid £500 for his first yeah, house. Yeah. And yeah, um, then uh, it was called Between the Commons, because at one end of the road was a Wandsworth Common, right. and at the other end of the road was Clapham Common. You know, so it, it was deemed to be like a paradise. It was raised up in the hill. You could see over into ones of coming, you know, and, and it seemed like um, the old man had landed on his feet, <laughs> you know. The, then the, the temperature was what really got me, that it was colder than Barbados, and I couldn't run around barefooted. <laughs> Or I couldn't run around in just a T-shirt. And shorts. Yeah, I had to have a jumper. Yeah. So it was a real culture shock when you were coming in, as, as it would be for any young yeah, boy. Yeah, culture change, you know. And then uh, my parents had brought me in the summer holidays. I think I arrived in June. And then I was due to go to school in September. So you, you, when you've moved into Battersea, hmm. you've left your guitar behind? or you, Did you bring it with you? Well... I couldn't bring the guitar because it weren't mine. <laughs> it was my uncle's, <laughs> right? And so I informed my parents that, that I, I knew my way around the guitar. And going to school was another seminal moment where you found your way into a band. Yes. Um, actually, my dad has still got a friend. My dad's friend, uh, Mr. Gibson, who lived in Balham, which was close yep. to Battersea. I could walk there. He had 
an acoustic guitar, a white acoustic guitar, and I was allowed to borrow it, you know. And so I'd have it for weeks on end right. at my house, and he'd go, bring the guitar back. Son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? No, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, and um, he'd lend me this guitar, and I went to school and found that there were three boys, three little white boys that had a group called... Roadworks. Roadworks uh, ahead. ahead. And um, they were looking for a fourth member to play guitar and sing. So I thought, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, you know, went along and auditioned with them. And they accepted me. And I was in the band. Only I didn't have an electric guitar. So I convinced my mum that she should buy me an electric guitar. And she did. But we had to keep it, you know, on the down low. And of course, as soon as Dad knew, <laughs> that would be um, a, a frequent threat <laughs> if I misbehaved. The guitar would get taken away. Taken away. 100%. It would get thrown on the fire in the <laughs> dining room. So um, Dad would threaten me all the time, go, you get, a ba you get another bad school report and the guitar goes on the fire. <laughs> you know, so I had to... I had to box cleverly <laughs> you know i had to make sure that i succeeded in maths english geography history all that you know physics chemistry and at least bring home a piece of paper that said i had passed it was either that or the guitar yeah and i love that yeah. guitar so much yeah, yeah. I, listen pay attention <laughs> You know, learn French. You know, do, <laughs> Anything. You know, any, any, get good marks. That was the thing. And Dad would leave me alone to, to do what I... And then, because I got good marks, he would say, uh, maybe you can uh, use the basement for a rehearsal room. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so we turned the, the basement in our house into a rehearsal room. And uh, I had drums, keyboards... And even a tape recorder and, you know, uh, guitars. Uh, the lot in my house was constantly full of people who were interested in music. And my dad was quite clever in that because um, he'd go, uh, bring your friends around because he wanted to see who it was He's I was hanging out with. <laughs> right? And occasionally he'd go, mm, I don't know sure if that boy that there is, you know, the type of guy you want to be hanging yeah. about with because he's rude or yeah. whatever, sad, you know. Sad, like my mum and dad, sort of to a T back in the day. Yeah. If someone came into my house and didn't say good afternoon or good evening, my dad would go, nah. what a rude, no, yeah, no, 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 don't Come bring out. him back here because yeah. <laughs> he's out. got no manners, <laughs> you know. But fortunately... I briefed them more. Okay? You go to my house, be polite to my parents, otherwise you won't be allowed in anymore. So what kind of music were you playing in Roadworks Head? At that time, we, we, we idolised the shadows. Oh, really? And I was the lead guitarist, so I was the black Hank Marvin. Okay. Um, I'm having trouble imagining that, can't you know, imagining that. Because um, the shadows, Cliff Richards and the shadows at that time, were a top group. You know? Top entertainers. Right, Hank Marvin played the guitar admirably until Jimi Hendrix came along. Of course, and then um, I idolised him, especially that song Apache. Yeah. And I had a guitar that had a tremolo on, so oh, right, I could so do the tremolo thing. Right, and um, most boys my age thought, "Ah, oh, he can play that. He's quite good," you know, but. They didn't realise the hours of sitting in my room with my radiogram that my dad had given yeah. me to keep me kind of cool. 
I think that's really interesting because a lot of people kind of look at your journey over 50 years and a bit, see the incredible work that you've output the people that you've given great sound to and given voice to. But very few may understand the amount of hard work at the top end that you would have put into getting to that place. Practicing. Yeah. And um, that kept me off the streets. Right. And my dad didn't want me to be on the streets because he knew of um, racial tension. He knew of police tension, right? And neither of those were particularly, you know, appealing to him. So he would tell me, stay at home. But practice was the key for you. Practice and having that kind of, that's a real structure and a form of just discipline in order to kind of be able to kind of know this is where you want to go. Were you serious about music at that point? Of course, listen, my first girlfriend dumped me because um, I opted to have a rehearsal instead of going to the cinema with that, her. Yeah, that's, de- that's dedication. That's dedication. She's like, well, I want to go to the cinema. I go, like, go on, then off to the cinema. I go, rehearse with my friends. And she's going, what, it's them or me? I'm going, them. <laughs> Those kind of sacrifices that sometimes people don't see, and I think it's mm. really so. It's really interesting to kind of hear those stories because it's a really insight into the things you have to do in order yeah. to kind of, if you're serious about it, Something has to give along the way. You can't. You, you can't yeah. be doing everything. Yeah, right? that's true. I wanted to play that guitar and that little group. I was kind of the only African in there, you know, and uh, the only Bajan, of course. Yeah. But Bajan African, and um, these little English boys were proud to show me off right. as a guitarist <laughs> who could match yeah. any guitar yeah. and sing. And then when Jimi Hendrix came about, I learned to play Hey Joe. And when the solo bit came, I don't. Mm-mm. At what point does the Roadworks head morph into the next phase of your career? Is it that's where Jar Safra comes in with the sound system? Or is it Not yet. Where, so where... The next stage of my musical career went to um, a group called Stonehenge. Right. I don't know about. This is one that you know, well, passed me by. Dennis. Stonehenge was when Roadworks Ahead kind of fizzled out because the guitar player got a job in the music business working for Robert Stigwood. Right, okay. And at that time, the Bee Gees had had their first, you know, Massachusetts and all that, right? And um, Robert Stigwood was the publisher record label RSO. Yes. And um, Norman Hitchcock, the guitar player, took a job working for RSO. So at that time, you could leave school at the age of 14. Yeah, okay. Right? So he, but he had a job. You know, white kid got a job in a publisher's bye-bye school. Yeah. So the group kind of dissipated because he was doing a job. And then the bass player got a job as a sound engineer trainee at Olympic Studios in Clapham Common. You know, famous, the famous Olympic shooting. Yes, yeah. he was involved in quite a few hits there, yeah. you know, with some top bands. Yeah. And so there was just me and the drummer, and then well, what are we going to do, get some new guys? We didn't want to play with new guys because we loved playing with those guys yeah, since yeah. we were 12, yeah. and then that was the end of it. So some older boys now who were in about two years older than us who played very well, and in fact, one school assembly, they, this is the, the black side of the school now, and the bigger boys, right? They invited me 
Now, they were six formers, and I was like a third former, right. fourth former. And they invited me to play in their band in the school assembly. And they said, the songs we're going to play is the MGs, Green Onions, and we're going to play Otis Redding, My Girl. Off you go. Learn that, and tomorrow morning... Come back and play. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> because I was quite cocky. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'll learn that. And I went home and swatted those two tunes. And then I went over to Mr. Gibson's house where a family, the White family, lived. And Trevor, or Audley Trevor, he was the bass player of the Rudys, right? And uh, they had just broken up and because Freddie Notes had left. And they got Glenn Oakley in to sing. And the name was changed to Greyhound. Okay. Right. So their first record, The Child is White. Oh, no, The Child is Black. black. The Page is White. (laughs) Together they learn to read and write. Right. Number one record. This is my friend, my big friend. (laughs) So I borrowed his bass guitar to go to school to do this. Um, thing with these six formers because um, they wanted me to play bass, not guitar. They wanted me to play bass, right? Because I played bass in the school orchestra, but it was an upright bass. And they wanted me to play electric electric bass, right? And so it was at a time when BBC Two had just began colour transmission. So this bass was ice blue, not not red or black, uh, uh, it was ice blue and instantly noticeable. So when I turn up at school with that bass and I'm playing it and the, the, the bigger boys put me to stand on top of the grand piano, right? Because these yeah. are all six footers, yeah, these yeah. guys in the yeah. school. No one's missing you. Not no at all. No one's missing you with that bass. And... <laughs> My mates were like in awe because that's that bass we've seen on top of the pop. So they're going, yeah, I borrowed it. And everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. wants to touch it, you know. But it's not mine. Yeah, so, yeah be careful with it. Yeah. yeah. So we did that. And then the drummer wanted to form a band to play R&B and blues and a bit of rock. So I thought, yeah, I'll take a piece yeah. of that. But I'm playing guitar and another older boy the older brother of another friend, George Pennant, his name was, and his bigger brother was Leo Pennant. George Pennant is the father of Simone Pennant, MBE. She's in... Um, you, you, yeah, she worked for the BBC for yeah, a lot of years. I don't know. But. And uh, in fact, at his funeral, I, I revealed that it was him teasing me about playing Jimi Hendrix and going, look, there's only one Hendrix and it ain't you. Right, it's like you should play at this point. We should be playing rock steady reggae, right? Because reggae was just coming in. I mean, they'd been hit, you know. And and at that time, we were just turning. I don't know, seventeen. So discovering the the fairer sex, you know, yeah, yeah. men want blues dance, yeah. right? Going out to parties and actually having the opportunity to rub with a oh, daughter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> quite innocently. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you've never been to a blues party, then Dennis and I know exactly what what, yeah. what, what that is. Yeah, and what yeah. that's all yeah. about. It got close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Stonehenge. Now we played BB uh, King. You know, we played. Otis Redding, we played Wilson Pickett, you know. But whereas before with Roadworks Ahead, I was playing like 
the Beatles, the Monkees, Rolling, uh, Rolling Stones, all the stuff like that, right? And so this is my change now right. to black American yeah. music, right? And when that kind of reached its peak, because the elder boys were then leaving school and getting jobs and, you know, they weren't as free as they would have been, I then decided I'm going to form a reggae band because George said to me, this is the way forward, reggae. And also two other friends from Dominica, Mackie Samuels and Francis Samuels. Mackie Samuels was the DJ of a sound system called Sir Gooden. And Sir Gooden was a Battersea sound, right? right? Okay. Anybody in Battersea knew Gooden because uh. that was, if you, Boogie is Saturday night, Gooden playing Dessa. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it, it was, um, he was yeah, our local yeah, yeah, favorite yeah. sound. And him and Coxon and they, they're all friends, you know. Uh. And there was another sound called The President. Um, yeah, I've heard of the president. Right, who was famously dubbed um, Coxon's number two uh, because they would share bo boxes, boxes and, yeah. and records, I think, you know. So this uh, sound phenomenon kind of, I got bitten by it. You know, I was like, yeah, sound systems, because that was the kind of music that I was attempting to play. And it had been ridiculed, said, no man in England can play reggae, Right. <laughs> Because English reggae had a different twist to it. It had a different flavour. You know, it was like thinner soup. So I really need to explore that for a minute. Why do you think that was? Was that a product of the environment or not understanding the deeper ethos of what reggae was or was just the way it was being played at the time? Or There's two things. It fell at the engineering level because engineers were afraid the bass would burst the speakers. Right. They didn't imagine that bass could be that loud and that tasty, right? They were accustomed to having the bass at the back of the orchestra. Reggae, that bass was right oh, out in your face, even louder than the drums. Sometimes in, in the old Studio One and Duke Reed era, Right? So the engineers would be quite feeble at the engineering end. And no matter how the players played, it didn't come across on the, re you know, the receiving of it. The volumes were minuscule. The volumes were, you know, not as loud as they ought to have been in the mix. So um, while I was at school, they had um, built a recording studio. And this recording studio was meant for the English department, right, to record incidentals for the school drama group, right? And so I managed to have myself installed <laughs> as the chief engineer there because I noticed that whilst it was being built, there was plenty of black labor, but when it was being operated... No, there was none. No to be seen. So I went up there one lunchtime, knocked on the door, and everyone came out in white coats. I'm going, what's going on? Studio. Ah, oh, tape recorders. Blah, blah, blah. There's none of us in here. There's all of you in there learning, and, and all of us built it. We're on the outside looking in. On the pretext of making us super masons and carpenters. You know, in the building and the construction of that, that was quite good. But then... I wasn't content just to be a carpenter or a mason. 
I wanted to know how those knobs worked, yeah. right? So I went up there, and because I was quite a big lad, quite forceful, <laughs> I said, right, I propose that I be the chief engineer in here. <laughs> and of course, <clears throat> I was reported to the headmaster. And um, when I was hauled up in front of him in his office, he said, what makes you think you can get away with this? And I said, well, sir, I noticed all the, the black labor you had building this facility, and I've noticed the lack of it, you know, now that it's being operated and run. And I am the representative of all the black labor. And we've decided that at least one of us, me, should be involved in learning how this equipment works. And he thought about it for a minute. He went, I admire your cheek. I think I'll let you stay. But if you put one foot wrong, laddie, you'll be for the high job. I went, that's good enough for me. I'm in. <laughs> and so on that, I, you know, became quite proficient in the art of sound recording, you know. And uh, so when I was in the studios recording my own stuff, I would nudge the engineer and go, excuse me, this is what we want. Yeah. And equalize stuff. And, and they'd be there wide-eyed and mouth agape thinking, I can't make this desk. How did you make me do that? You know, and, and I, it would be kind of a, no, no, this is a secret. Right. And then the, my friends would go, yeah, that's the sound. Right. So I became known for being able to achieve the reggae sound. And I think that's due to the fact that in 1969, a friend of mine, Owen Kerr, he came to me and said, look, my cousin has got married with a lad from Kensal Rise, and he's coming to live in Battersea. And um, him and his brother are thinking about putting together a sound system. And we heard that you've been making dub plates at school, so <laughs> let me hear these dub plates, right? what you've been making. And after playing him these dub plates, he went, right, I want them all. I was like, you want them all? Went, yeah. Um, have you got a DJ for the sound? He went, no. I said, well, that would be that me. me. That's me, yeah. So he went, okay, come. You bring your dub plates, you're part of the sound. We've got the amplification, blah, blah, blah. And we started off like that. And the name of the sound is Sufferer. Sufferer. Uh, a lot of people used to say, why is the sound called Sufferer? Because we are the sound system of the sufferers, right? We are all sufferers, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not. And we are the mighty sufferers entertaining, just sufferers hi-fi, <laughs> you know. And um, we started playing around Battersea, uh, Lansdowne Road uh, in Stockwell, you know. And then we got offered to be the resident sound at the Metro in Ladbroke Grove. St. Luke's Road, Ladbroke yeah, yeah, Road. Okay. Now, the Metro yeah. had been recently closed down because of an affray with, um, when Duke Vinn was the resident sound. And um, Trevor Bow had received a prison sentence. And then they were seeking to reignite the Metro and they wanted Sufferer Sound. Now, that was unusual because we came from Battersea. And if a Battersea sound went to play in Ladbroke Grove, there could be trouble. Or if a Battersea sound went to play in Brixton, because talk about post-Code War, right? 
It was, it was, it was happening back then. It was happening back then. It just yeah. wasn't called yeah. postcode. Yeah. And people were battling with dub plates and, as yeah. opposed to And if else. you come from north, south, east, if you come from north, you stay in the north. You don't come in the south yeah. and run up your mouth, right? Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So, um, in fact, the, the big four frequently came to a place called Poutney Hall on Lavender Hill um, in Wandsworth to, to battle it out. You should tell people who the big four were, because those that don't know. The big four were Sir Coxon, Jewel Creed, Count Shelley, and Neville the Enchanter. <laughs> so for those that don't understand as well, tell people how important the sound systems were for the culture and the people at that particular yeah. point in time. The sound systems were our radios. They were our messengers. They brought news of what was fresh in reggae. Right, they they brought news of what the next thing is going to be. You know, some records that they played were not yet readily available. You'd have to wait until the record release, and then if you don't even know the tune, the 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 name of the tune, you have to sing the tune to the shop people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's one of my tunes. I go, you don't have to know the catalog number. Oh. Just sing this song to the shopkeeper. Mix it. <laughs> and um, that was all very true. Now, because I'd been listening to sound systems in big open spaces, I knew what the, the recipe was for the bass to be reproduced at that level, for the drums, the whole reggae. So I made sounds that I could, you know, see being reproduced. And also you had to be careful about... The, the, the amount of the frequencies because I'd been learning about disc cutting and cutting vinyl discs is a specialty. I mean, there are certain frequencies that sound all right now on digital and all that, but in, back in the day, you would have been able yeah. to put those frequencies on that vinyl, yeah. on that plastic, yeah. you know, because the treble will make the needle jump, jump off. off. Yeah. And the bass, if you put to it, will make the needle go because it would create what's called a square wave instead of a sine wave. And 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 I learned all about, you know, the waves and all that. In fact, my teacher was a man called John Hassel, who had Hassel's recordings. He he was a Jewish man that lived in Barnes. And uh Hassel was my teacher. So I kind of introduced other sound systems to Hassel's cutting machine that he had in his living room. And he was inexpensive. It was not like going uptown or going to Wembley. So he'd been a man cutting your, cutting your dubs Listen, for you. I regretted having um, told Shaka and Cox and, and, <laughs> and them man there because then they booked all the time and I couldn't get in there. And in fact, um, David Ronigan wrote in his book, he wrote that um, one day... Um, he'd been in there cutting, and suddenly I barge in and said, David, give us a bit of a minute, give us a minute. I've got this tune that I need to, to make a, a dub plate of. And, and he kind of graciously went, yeah, go on in. And I put the tune on, and he remembers that the tune was Silly Games. We're coming there, but we have to get this on the journey to get there because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was lots yeah. of things before yeah. Silly Games. Yeah. In fact, um, the yeah. first lover's rock singer that I experimented with was a singer called Marie Pierre. Okay. And um, she was my brother-in-law's wife, so she was family, and she could sing, you know. And so her and I um, struck a, a relationship of writing songs together, and occasionally that afforded me to explore my 
musicality and my multiple musicianship. So know? what were you playing that time? You were still, you're obviously playing your guitar, you're playing bass. I'm playing drums, drums I'm playing keys, keyboards, right, okay. I'm playing so, the lot. So, so you're a one-man band, essentially. Correct. Right now. That's how uh, Lloydie Coxon says to me, ah, and we were talking about meeting as Coxon and Sufferer. Right. Lloydie said to me, would you think I'm going to come and gamble my name, Sir Coxon, that I've been building for all these years, with you in a dance for a hundred pound. It's better we don't meet, yeah. right? So I was going, but we should join forces in the recording studio. I've got an idea, and you're going to help me pull it through. And I was going, oh, then. His idea was to do a reggae version of the song that he used to sign on his sound system with religiously. With anyone who ever heard Coxon's sound and was there from the beginning, as soon as all those boxes were working and functioning, he would play Robert Parker's version of Caught You in a Lie. He was famous for playing that song. In fact, he was one of the only sounds that played that, right? Because it's very little known, and, and it, was, it was like a dub plate, you, you know. You had to know where that record came from and who sang it, you know, and Lloydie Coxon hammered that song to death. So when he'd been having a competition, because by this time he had become the resident sound at the Four Aces in Dalston. Yeah, one of, one of the great black clubs in, ever yeah, in the UK. Absolutely. And um, he wanted to do a reggae version, so said, all right then. And he used to call me Dr. Who. <laughs> I said, Dr. Who. Come, come, you know, Matumbi. Yeah, yeah. And so went into the studio with uh, the drummer of Matumbi, Newton uh, Jones, and uh, the vocalist of Matumbi, um, Bevin Fagan and myself, who played guitar. And um, while we were there recording this Caught You in a Lie reggae version, I had the idea to start it off like a false start because that was in the time when a lot of reggae began with a, an intro that wasn't the tune. Yeah. So I thought about um, sharking on Caught You in a Lie but changing the intro from what it was as a saxophone thing going ba ba da ba 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 da ba ba da ba 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 da right saxophone thing i thought that's a bit dreary and so while we were recording it i took the bass line from a famous lee perry production okay called curly locks right when the grot won the Best At that time, of all, biggest of all time. reggae tune. And the bass line went... Right? And I chose that part of the song to open yeah. Caught You in a Lie. Yeah. But instead of playing... Um, and all that, I came with the idea to use a synthesizer... Yeah. Now, this is the um, the Moog synthesizer that had had only been utilized by groups like Yes yeah, or Stevie King, Wonder, and Stevie King Wonder at that Crimson, time was, yeah. was one of the great right. exponents of it. That's right. So, and it was a mono instrument. You could only play one note at a time, yeah. and you had to tune them. I mean, the player of Yes, what's his name? Uh, Rick Wakeman. Rick Wakeman 
Rick Wakeman was famous for that instrument. I mean, he's got loads of them. So there was this instrument in the studio, and I've gone at the front of the machine, the t- the, the thing going, on the do do ba do ba do ba do that curly locks bass line. Yeah. I'm going, right, and at that time, I'm showing off to Robbie Shakespeare, who's in the studio, <laughs> and, was... and I'm going, Robbie, you ever see one of this at Jamaica? <laughs> right, and then I overdub another line that goes, right, to bolster the backing vocal chorus, right? Well, after that, Lloyd Coxon, who had boasted that he didn't play English reggae, pun him song, only play pre-release and strictly dubwise from Jamaica. <laughs> that was his motto, and that, that was his phrase. There he was playing that song on his sound system, in some way eating humble pie. Yeah. But people didn't accredit any of that to me. And I'm the bass player, I'm the guitarist, I'm the synthesizer, I'm the pianist, right? And I'm playing organ and Louise is singing, and Newton's playing drums, right? Um, the notoriety of that song, how popular it became in a short space of time, taught me a lesson. It was like, hmm, them man, they can't do that for themselves, right? Because I never know Lady Cox to play no bass or guitar, <laughs> no, 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 no. but his name's on the record, producer. He was the executive producer. He paid for all of that, yeah. right? I'm the musical producer, I played all of that. He paid, I played, right? <laughs> and so it taught me a lesson. I thought, Dennis, you better not do this for anyone except you're doing it for yourself. But then Castro Brown comes along and goes, hey, Mia, what are you doing now? I said, yeah. And Castro, his mom and my parents have been long friends since the 50s. In fact, there was a time when my parents, before they bought their own house, when they were tenants oh, in really? Castro Bound's mum's house right. in Putney, right? right? And um, this was before I arrived. So he knew who I was because he knew my parents, right? And then we kind of met and started hanging out together as f- friends of parents. I mean, I used to take my dad's partner money to Castro's mum's house to pay my dad's partner money. Yeah, and if people don't know what partner is, we should... We should elaborate on yeah, that. Yeah, we well, should elaborate on partner that. Partner <laughs> is um, a way that um, West Indian people pooled their money and sources together where, say, the draw or the, the throw, <laughs> the throw is the amount of money you put in. Yeah. The draw is the amount of money you get out. Yeah. So Castro Brown comes along to me and he goes, right, you're going to make some records with me. I'm going, am I? He goes, yeah. I've got a group. I go, all right, let's hear it. He's going, but they haven't got a name. What do you mean, no name? How are they called? He goes, 15, 16, 17. I go, 15, 16, 17. I like it. But why 15, 16, 17? He's going, because one of them is 15, one of them is 16, and the other one is 17. That's their age. And it was novel. 
And he's come with this tune, the, the Christine, the, the, the lead singer, she's come with this tune. Black skin voice, are the better black skin voice. Oh, yes. Of course, I'm having peace of that. <laughs> and I've gone into the studio, this time with a drummer called Jabani, who was the drummer from Rico Undivided and then Monday, right? Yeah. A, a different style of yeah. drummer, right? And uh, I've gone into the studio with him and I've, repeated you know he's drumming i'm playing all the mm -hmm. other instruments and the girls are singing and that song rose to the hill dennis brown had released it on his dev label right so therefore i was more than capable and able of making this new beat that we were about to pronounce lovers rock because uh, i mean a lot of people in London had recording. They didn't have my sound, but they had been recording. And Count Shelley, most notably, had recorded uh, Ginger Williams, a song called Tenderly. Oh, I know the song. You touch my hand. Yeah. And uh, he'd recorded Gene Rondo. Gene Rondo had lots of hits. He was the Rasta crooner. You know, and uh, he's no longer with us. But one of his songs was "Oh, Sweet Africa, Land of My Forefather," uh, a tune which I very much idolized and loved, and, and versioned it myself right. later on. And um, "Prisoner of Love," how lonesome mm -hmm. night you'll find me. I'm the chains that bind me. I'm a prisoner of love. He was like, oh. He, he was the, the reggae Nat King Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, so those people were making reggae that was recorded in London, but it was not being called Lover's Rock. Only when Louisa Mark had done that and Marie Pierre had done a song called Walk Away, and then John Kapai my great friend and most talented man who plays every instrument just like I do. So him and I together yeah. were like an orchestra. Yeah. And uh, an old friend, Dennis Harris, who had um, lots of record labels and who had been involved with groups like the Pioneers and groups like that. And he'd also been involved with Susan Cadogan's hit, um, Hurt it. So Good. Because him and Lee Scratch Perry were very close friends. And uh, he had put that out on his level before it was re-released on Magnet and went yeah. into the charts. And he had sold up his grocer shop in Broccoli, his mini-mart, and um, decided to buy a premises two doors or three doors away where it had a basement where he could build a recording studio and do his record business. And then came to me and said, with a bunch of keys, and said, these are the keys to the studio for you. This is your studio. You could do whatever you like in there. Just make sure I get an album out of it every month. <laughs> right? And upstairs there's a room where if you get too tired and you, go you, sleep. you don't have to go home, go upstairs and sleep and wake up in the morning. Do you know what I mean? And it was like he didn't ask me. He told me as an elder man. <laughs> so from there and him and I became, you know, reasonable friends. So when he built this studio, wanted me to be the engineer. And one night whilst I was playing some guitar, he said. And I like the way you play guitar, you know. It's going, look, you play a bass good, but your guitar playing ain't, ain't up it. to it. 
I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I know someone who will wipe the floor with you playing guitar. Sound yeah? Bring him. You know. <laughs> and he brings the guy. And it's some guy called John Kapai. Now, John is um, of mixed heritage. His father's Nigerian, his mother's Welsh, right? But you couldn't meet more of a gentleman and a great musician. And in fact, he was involved with a group called The Cats in 1968, that um, scout version of Swan Lake. Ding, 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 That actually featured in the British charts. Yes. So I... You know, I knew the group, and then here I was meeting one of the group, the guitar player. When he plugged his guitar in and started playing, I thought, then Yeah. I was put my down. <laughs> yeah. Play. Yeah. So I yeah. said to him, hey, what? Yeah. Me, me and you form a group now. <laughs> I'll play bass, you play guitar. That was in 1975. I'd been a fan of the Beatles for a long time. Right. And I'd been reading where um, Sir George had been talking about them making loops. And so I decided I could make loops as well. And um, one afternoon in, in the studio to demonstrate how to make a loop, reggae was just um, beginning to issue versions on the other side of the tune. And a most popular tune at number one at the time was Young, Gifted and Black. Bob and Marcia. Bob and Marcia. So I um, helped myself to a few bars from <laughs> the recording on the other side, linked them together, and then got a member of the staff to play trombone and flute and make a dub version of Guantanamera. Now, that tune, when I cut the dub plate, I took it to a dance one night, um, a, a sound system called Jim Daddy. This sound system was a uh, Southwest London oh, sound system. I don't know that one. Jim don't Daddy. And I invited him to play again. Can you play this? Yeah. So he put it on and he went, yeah, my wicked guy. I'll get a tree pound for it. <laughs> which is a, which is a, which is a lot, lot of, money. of money back then, yeah. So I thought, I can't turn this three quid down. <laughs> I took the three quid and they gave him the record. <laughs> And out uh, of that three quid, we drank alcohol and got a taxi home. Right. Right? <laughs> and was that the start of you being That was the start of me. Being named the Bluebeard. Blackbeard, yeah. Oh, Blackbeard, sorry. Blackbeard. That was the start of being called Blackbeard because. The, um, the pirate. The people thought it was piracy, and I was going, I'm not pirating the tune. I'm just, you know, showing my skills about how to borrow. <laughs> And that kind of black beard existence carried all the way through. Yes, because I then grew a black beard. Yeah. I wanted to go back and talk to you about the Louisa Mark thing because mm. it's a seminal moment in your career. Absolutely. But it's also a seminal moment in black British culture and black music. Yes. When you were making that, or when you finished it and you, and you saw the reaction, did you realise what you'd done at the time? Well, I had hoped it to be around as long as it has been, you know, uh, and I hoped to gain notoriety at being a bass player, guitarist, you know, in, a multi-instrumentalist, yeah. right? And um, in some way, people would call on me to do that. And I realised later on that I 
was actually short selling myself because I'm doing the work of five Five or six people, right? But getting paid paid (laughs) (laughs) for one. (laughs) (laughs) And that for me was at least I've got a job, I'm working, you know. But then after a while, I I, I stopped doing that for other people other than myself. And that was when I recorded Silly Games. You know, I, I had this drum pattern in my head that I wanted to get a real drummer to play. And I tried it out on a few, but none of them really came up to the expectation of what I expected from this beat that was going through my head. And I could, I could mouth beat it, but to play it on the drums, right, was quite difficult. I could play it for, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, but to play it for three minutes constant, right, um, was a bit of a bother. So I went to Drummy Zeb, the drummer of Aswad. Aswad, yeah, I know Drummy. I said, Drummy, listen to this beat. You think you can play it? And he was like, oh, you mean? When he first started playing, he thought, "Why?" He was like, "Why didn't I think of this again?" Because he's not me, <laughs> right? And he got on it and he varied it, and he was going, "I'm going, yeah, you understand what it is that I want. Let's go into the studio." So we go into the studio, and I'm playing the bass, and I'm the sound engineer, and I'm teaching him the tune. Janet doesn't know the tune yet. Janet's not involved yet, and I'm. Saying to him, well, when the bass goes do 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 do, that is the verse. When it goes do 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 do, that's the chorus, right? He understood, and I couldn't talk whilst I'm playing, so I go right. This is it, and this is verse one, verse two, and then the chorus is out, and after two takes. He was in it. He was in it. He was in it to the tune of where, um, at the end of the song, where it goes, to play your silly game. Right, on that bit, right? I just wanted the drums to be steady there. He's going, I'm thinking, hmm, that's rock, but I like it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, the whole idea was to create a drum pattern that would give Sly Dunbar trouble to play. <laughs> And would also knock him off his pedestal as the greatest <laughs> reggae drummer at that time and bring an English youth who played drums to create a pattern that was monstrous enough, you know, that most go, drummers, it's like to go, mm, yeah, yeah, hold on a minute. yeah. And so my idea was to create a whole heap of tunes with that drum beat. Right. But due to the success of that one tune, mm-hmm. I didn't do it again. Because it'd be like, that's all him can do. <laughs> now, if I was in Jamaica, I would have sharked on that beat and played it a hundred times yeah. with lots of different artists. Yeah. You, everybody using, that'd be the new thing. Yeah. Right, but, you know, it's in England, you do one and then that's a one-off and then you carry on, you try to make something else. And then, once we'd finished the rhythm track, um, I invited Janet to sing. I mean, that vocal is iconic. Mate, I'm um, telling you. Yeah, and of course, everybody tries it and no one can reach that note. Because that's clearly, I mean, one of the signature moments in that song. Yeah. And in reggae in the UK. And 100%, which was where I wanted to go to next, because I'm really interested in finding out who was the person that coined the phrase lovers rock, because there was no genre. It was something that was created from well, music that you made. Persons coined that phrase. Right. 
Because on the sound systems in that time, the mic announcer would be announcing the next tune or the next style, you know. This is rockers, you know. Or this, you know. And then the term came, Love lovers this. rock. Now that would be telling the audience, this is a tune that you've got to dance to, uh, together. Right, find yourself a partner. This yeah, is lovers rock, right? <laughs> and um, the mic person on my sound at the time, a youth called Pebbles, was quite famous for saying that. So, when speaking to Dennis Harris about what was new in the dance, because I had I straddled both genres in the in the sound system and in the group world. And we would talk about what was fame, what was popular in the dance. For instance, there was a, a statement at one time when the mic man would say, Oh, sir. You know, and then the, if the audience replied, Go there, it would be licensed to play that tune and any other version of that tune for the next half hour. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I told him about that. So he said, Huh, that's the title of your first album then. Oh, sir, go there. And I'd constructed a group um, that was given the name the Fourth Street Orchestra for the purposes of misleading people as to where it was recorded. Because I wanted to bust this myth that reggae couldn't be made in England, you know. And so uh, we put out a section of records there. Then once John Kapai had written a song called I'm in Love with the Dreadlocks, okay, Big tune. Now, he had written that tune in answer to Curly Locks. I had dabbled with a bit of Curly Locks for my Louisa Mark yeah. thing before Brown Sugar, but there was this iconic song, I'm in love with the dreadlocks. Now, uh, I remember one night when uh, Coffee was singing this tune, she said, in the day, you could bring home a white man, an Indian man, a Chinese man, but don't bring home my dreadlocks. <laughs> Your parents now are like that. And I thought, you know what? That was true. As soon as a man grew dreadlocks, right, he was frowned upon and deemed as a, uh, a dropout, you know, and, and a no good somebody, you know. So uh, John written this tune, I'm in love with a girl, is saying, I'm in love with the dreadlocks. I never felt this way before, right? And so in the talk about how this song should be marketed, you know, I told Dennis, you know what the new statement in, in, in dance is? What? Lover's rock. And he went, yeah, I like that. And took his pen out and drew a heart with a Cupid thing and went, see the label there? And before you knew it, I'm in love with the dreadlocks was released on the Lover's Rock label. I mean, I saw that label again for the first time in maybe 30 years last night. Mm -hmm. And it brought back so many memories. Yeah, man. So many memories. Because that was, that was the label and the pronouncement that the genre was to be called Lover's Rock. And it hadn't been called Lover's Rock before. It had been, you know, hinted at in the dance by the DJs and that, because, you know, the, the, the new phrase going around. But to actually cement it and have a label called Lover's Rock giving rise to it being a genre. Um, Dennis Harris did that. And John Kopai with Brown Sugar. Thinking back on that now as well, how does 
creating that genre feel and knowing that it's travelled around the world and it's been accepted around the world by everybody, even back back at home, right. which is the, the which is the actual, the actual acid test for for what you do. When we made that record, I made a little joke to Janet. I said, "What are you going to wear on top of the pops?" She was like, "Come on, man, you on top of the pops, yeah, ideally." And then when we got the call to go on top of the pops, I said, "Remember when I asked you what you're going to wear? Yeah, what are you going to wear?" We got top of the pops. She's like, "Oh yeah." She concocted her own style, dressed herself. Yeah, perfect for you know for that time. And um, yeah, sailed to the top of the charts, man. You know, and it was exactly what I imagined for that tune. And when it came, the the feeling was tremendous. You know, a reggae tune that I played all the instruments on, that I produced, that I engineered, right, is at the top of the charts. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this has been Union Black, the black British producers behind Global Albums. Our thanks to Dennis Mavell for sharing his story. Thanks also to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Engin Hassan, our producer, Yata Wusu, and Chantel McCallum at Google. To check out and discover more stories from Union Black, go to Google Arts and Culture at artsandculture.google.com. Make sure you share and let us know your thoughts using the hashtag, hashtag Union Black. This has been Union Black, the black British producers behind global albums. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 